0: Cyber operations keep impacting civilians as Russia's war continues, and a cardiologist stands accused of being a ransomware kingpin. But is he the victim? These stories and more on this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Anna Delaney. More than 165 days after Russia invaded Ukraine, the conflict continues. Many might not think that cyber attacks have been a major feature of the war. But experts who've been tracking the conflict have counted more than 300 such cyber operations. Well, joining me to discuss is Matthew Schwartz, executive editor at ISMG. Matt, there's a sense that there never really was a cyber war component to Russia's invasion. But you've reported on there being a substantial number of attacks.
1: Yes, more than 300 cyber attacks and cyber operations tied to the conflict have been tracked so far. That count comes from Cyber Peace Institute. It's an independent and neutral non-governmental organization based in Geneva, whose mission is to reduce the harms from cyber attacks on people's lives and to promote responsible behavior, not least by governments. And it's been monitoring how such online attacks, including against critical infrastructure, have been affecting civilians since Russian Federation forces first invaded Ukraine. I spoke with Emma Raffray, a senior analyst at the Institute.
2: At the core of our work are data-centric projects in which we uh, document cyber attacks and harm um, that's generated as a result of these attacks. So we launched a platform called Cyber Attacks in Times of Conflict, in which we're tracking attacks on organizations in Ukraine, the Russian Federation, and other countries which have been attacked as a result of spillover effects of the conflict itself. So to date, we've documented attacks on 27 countries beyond Ukraine and the Russian Federation. And we've got in excess of 300 cyber attacks documented as of the 29th of July. And really the part that is most uh, worrying in in the context of the incidents that we've tracked today is that 19 different sectors have been targeted as part of these campaigns. And of these, we're seeing particularly worrisome attacks against public administrations, media organizations, the financial sector, the energy sector, telecommunications and the ICT, as well as transportation networks. So yeah, these are some of sort of the high level figures. And so far, we've also documented attribution by third parties to 36 different threat actors, ranging from nation states to hacking collectives and cyber criminal groups.
1: Cyber Peace Institute tracks these attacks against four core categories. Destruction, disruption, data weaponization, and disinformation and propaganda. It's important to note that the cyber attacks during the armed conflict in Ukraine have destroyed data and systems, disrupted critical infrastructure and
0: services, controlled
1: the information space, and exfiltrated significant volumes of data.
0: And as you know, Cyber Peace Institute has been tracking a high number of attacks, But do you think there's a lack of awareness of the true cyber attack impact being felt as a result of this conflict?
1: Definitely. There's a feeling, I think, that cyber war never really happened. And that's why work being done by groups such as Cyber Peace Institute is so important. Cataloguing these attacks helps hold attackers, including governments, to account not least for the unacceptable impact their operations are having on civilians. I asked the institute's Emma Raffray, to describe that impact for me in more detail.
2: So this is really the the bread and butter of our work here at the Institute. And because of the appalling loss of life of attacks using traditional weapons in Ukraine, really the impact of cyber attacks and operations has actually been masked in a way by the reporting of what are very, very distressing scenes in the country. And the volume and scope of cyber attacks Ukraine has actually been very high and would have normally drawn a much higher attention if the kinetic attacks hadn't been so severe. And attacks really in this situation, attacks against Ukraine by the Russian state are not new. But what we're seeing really in the context of war and what is causing us a significant amount of alarm and concern is attacks on critical infrastructure and essential services that are not military targets. What are some examples of this impact, Matt?
1: Unfortunately, there are so many. One of the big ones that a lot of people have heard of is access to the VSAT satellite communications network, which was knocked out on the day of the invasion. Another example is on April 8th, Ukraine successfully blocked an attack, which, if it had succeeded, would have knocked out electricity for 2 million people. Another one comes from Emma Raffray. She told me that wiper malware has had an impact during
2: the war and sometimes in unexpected ways. When we look at destructive attacks, we've documented several of these in how far they've actually caused harm to the civilian population. So, one of them is on the 25th of February, it's a wiper attack that targeted a border control station. And this actually slowed the processing of refugees crossing the border from. Ukraine into Romania. So this is one very real example of how cyber attacks have a concrete impact in real life and on the civilian population.
1: Unfortunately, one of the big takeaways here is that as the war continues, so too do the online attacks and their unacceptable impact on civilians.
0: Well, Matt, thank you very much for updating us on the conflict.
1: Thank you, Anna.
3: You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information
4: security news.
0: You may recall a few months back the astonishing story of a Venezuelan doctor being charged by the U.S. for using and selling Thanos ransomware. It was not a story that ISMG's Jeremy Kirk was going to miss out on investigating in the ransomware files. In fact, the story is so intriguing He's dedicated not one, but two episodes to it. Here's a taster.
3: Is a practicing cardiologist living in Venezuela also a cybercriminal mastermind? If U.S. prosecutors are to be believed, Moses Luis Segala Gonzalez is a polymath who not only treats heart patients, but also allegedly sells malicious software on the dark web. He was charged by the U.S. government in May with creating ransomware programs called Jigsaw and Thanos. The government alleges he's an old-school hacker from the late 1990s who got into ransomware as a side hustle Alongside his career as a cardiologist in Ciudad Bolivar, that's a city in southeastern Venezuela. Here's Alexander Mindlin, who is an assistant U.S. attorney with the Eastern District of New York, who will prosecute the case.
1: He's accused, essentially, of conspiring with users of his ransomware to carry out ransomware attacks on on
3: victim networks. Moses is now 55 years old, which is pretty far out of the typical age range of someone in the ransomware business. By all appearances, he comes from a real high-achieving family. There's a brother who's a dental specialist, another brother who's a lawyer, and yet another is in a high-ranking job in the National Police. People who know him and his family are dumbfounded and say the accusations could absolutely not be true.
0: I know Moises and his family, and they are a beautiful family, very united. I have never known them to be involved in anything out of the ordinary.
3: But Moses' wife says there's a reason for her husband's predicament and that he will defend himself.
0: is a man of integrity, a family man with values and principles who would never lend himself to such acts. God willing, we'll get the right legal team to clear his name.
3: The U.S. government accessed what it alleges are Moses' online accounts, including one that held cryptocurrency as well as Gmail and PayPal accounts. There's a wealth of digital evidence that's cited in the criminal complaint, including digital accounts that are under the name Moses Segala. But how does it all add up, and would it be a slam-dunk case against him if he went to trial? It seems too difficult for this to be exactly true. Could anyone this smart be that sloppy? The voice you're hearing is from a digital forensics expert who has worked at complicated cases involving digital evidence. My name is Tony Martino. I'm the director of the Northeast Cybersecurity and Forensic Center at Unica University in Utica, New York. Tony reviewed the government's complaint against Moses. Tony says with digital evidence, you still have to have a strong link between the cyber world and someone's body. He's not convinced that the government has necessarily shown that in this case. But Tony cautions that the government doesn't have to show all of its cards in a criminal complaint, so it may have more compelling evidence that we haven't seen. And and that's always the key in, in cyber investigations is who, who actually done it, right? Not what user account did it or even what IP address did it, right? Who was at the keyboard and the mouse when it happened? And and that's been a problem since the dawn of
4: cybercrime.
3: There's much, much more in this episode of The Ransomware Files. It's called Dr. Ransomware Part 2 and is part of a two-part series into this fascinating case. The second episode looks at Moses and if perhaps we're all just missing something. You can find it on ISMG's websites or wherever you get your podcasts. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk.
0: And finally, I spoke recently with Sandy Carielli, Principal Analyst at Forrester, who shared the latest bot management trends she's detailed in the Forrester Wave Bot Management Quarter 2 report. I asked her for her advice on effective bot management strategies that online businesses should consider. Here she is.
4: One of the things, Anna, that I think people didn't realize early on with bots is they thought it was just another application attack. And so they thought that, okay, it's a huge influx of automated traffic trying to take advantage of our application. So of course, our web application firewall or our DDoS service is going to protect us from that. One of the trends that I think people have realized is that you actually do need a bot management solution. You do need something that looks at business logic types of attacks, because that's where bots are really going after. They're not usually going after failures in web applications. There is this notion of Web Recon where bots will look for flaws in web apps in order to mount a more sophisticated attack later. But that is less common than bots that are trying to do credential stuffing or bots that are trying to do inventory hoarding. That's where a lot of the news is. PS5 a couple of years ago, graphics cards, now even hoarding of vaccines, hoarding of other types of things that are in low supply. Anything that people want that is hard to get, you're starting to see bots come to the fore. I was talking to one vendor several months ago who said, and I made a joke. I said, all right, we're going to see formula bots soon because there was that whole run on baby formula. And he turned to me and said, Sandy, already seeing them. So I think the important thing to note is that while you have all of your traditional web application protections, you do need that bot specific element that's going to speak to the business logic.
0: That's it from the ISNG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time.